Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Greg. My name's Alicia. I've got a beer in front of me. You've got a beer in front of you. We watched a horror movie. It's another episode of Blood, Fear, and Beer. Woo! Woo! How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. It seems like it's been a hectic couple of days. It has seemed rather hectic. We discovered that we have ants in the apartment, so that's been fun. Those little fucks. I cannot handle having bugs in the apartment. No, I don't know where they're coming from either, no. but they seem to really like Raisin Bran for some reason. I don't understand why they're going for the Raisin Bran. It's so gross. The only thing I can think of is that the raisins themselves have a little bit of a sugar coating to them. They do, but we had a whole box of Captain Crunch up there too, and they didn't seem interested in that. No, but that's poison, and there's a lot of preservatives. Okay. <laughs> they go for the lightly dusted sugared raisins. Yeah, it just, they, it just comes off on their little paws. Well, I haven't seen any ants today since we put the traps out, so hopefully they're dead. Hopefully that does it. What are you drinking tonight? I was just about to ask you that, but you beat me to it. Tonight, I'm trying out beer from the Black Plague Brewing Company. Nice. It's called Tropicus, Tropical Pale Ale. It's got a steampunk penguin-looking fella. <laughs> it's a plague doctor. <laughs> it's a steampunk penguin. <laughs> and on the back of the can, it's got this really cool, uh, it's death. And his robe and everything, you know, the skeletal face. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he's wearing a, a nice Hawaiian t-shirt over his robe. And he's got, he's on the beach in a beautiful sunset drinking this beer with some shades on. And he just looks like he's having the time of his death. Nice. It's a bitchin' can. It is. How is it? It's wet. It's wet? No, it's really tasty. Oh, thank goodness. Okay. Yeah, it's orangey. Is it? Yeah. It's orangey and pineapple-y, but not, not juicy. It just the flavors are there. Nice. I'm actually getting almost a bitterness of maybe a grapefruit or something. I don't know. Can I try it? You most certainly cannot. Okay. Oh, smells good. It smells like an IPA. Oh, I'm getting a lot of pineapple. That's good. Yeah. That's, I've been digging yeah. the tropical ones. That's nice. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. I. It's always a hit or miss with those because I know you're not crazy about the pineapple, but sometimes if there's enough I mean, orange beer, it seems to work okay. Yeah, that's tasty. What are you drinking? I have another delicious beer from the Coronado Brewing Company, and this time I'm trying the Orange Wit, which I've had before. I remember it being super good, so hopefully it holds up. Mmm. That is goddamn delicious. Goddamn. That is so delicious. Try that. Right. That's incredibly refreshing. It's like two waves of mm. goodness. That's a good orange beer. Yeah. That's, I hate to say, because I like that Hangar 24 Company. This and is they better. have a pretty good one. That this is, is better. Yeah. That's good. Did you get the two hits, like the one-two with the orange? Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, the second one's almost a little sweeter. Yeah. Like the first one has a, the first wave's orangey, but it has like a hint of bitterness to me. Just a hint. The second wave just soothes it, smooths it. Yeah, that is super good. I love that. You did it again, Coronado. Yeah, they make good shit. I really like their beers. So this week, we covered The Last Exorcism, and that movie is about exorcism, obviously. <laughs> Not a surprise there. But in particular, it's about a fellow who is in the business or was in the business of performing exorcisms and found that they were bogus and he was disingenuous while he did it and ultimately decided he wasn't into it anymore and was kind of just in the motions until he read about something where a little boy had died because of a exorcism gone wrong. It was like a suffocation death, right? Yeah, suffocation yeah. death. And it just reminded me, I was going to try to see if that name that they mentioned in the movie was a real case or not. And I forgot to check and see if that particular case was real. There's tons, 
sadly, cases that are just like that. Yeah. So I don't know if they picked one in particular or if they just went with the flow. But because of that, I thought it would be interesting to look in to exorcism. Yeah. And to see, you know, what is going on. He mentions that it is becoming more and more prevalent. Yeah, and, which is interesting. Yeah, you like you would think that is kind of an archaic thing and it would be a dying art, but it's actually, you know, booming. Business is booming in the yeah. exorcist world. Is that true? It is true. I, I found this I was initially gonna try to find some exorcism gone wrong or that kind of thing. And as I said, I did look into that and sadly there's there's a plethora of them. But I found an article in particular that I feel is reminiscent of this story. Okay. And I thought we could dive into that and maybe go from there. Yeah, that'd be great. So I found this guy. His name is Richard Gallagher. And he wrote a article for the Washington Post. And Richard Gallagher is a board-certified psychiatrist and a professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College. And he has a very interesting background. Okay. His life work is very interesting, and the article is very interesting. So he describes that in the late 80s, he was introduced to a self-styled satanic high priestess. Self-styled satanic high priestess. Metal, okay. She called herself a witch, dressed the part. She said she was Satan's queen, all kinds of stuff like that. And the way that she he got introduced to this queen was... A Catholic priest was looking into this as a possible case of demonic possession. And he was looking to have a psychiatrist look into this person and basically say, like, do you see anything wrong here? Should I move forward? And it started his 25-year-long collaboration working on hundreds of of exorcism cases with all kinds of denominations, religions, and different exorcisms and being involved with those cases. And he has a really interesting deal where he was talking about how, yes, he didn't say, he didn't give a percentage, but he says the math majority are just mental illness. Yeah. But for him, he says he has witnessed things that he cannot, being a man of science, he has zero explanation for. And uh, in his eyes... The only possible explanation is demonic possession. Interesting. This high priestess was one of them. This was a classic type of thing where he described how she somehow knew how his mother had died specifically of ovarian cancer. There were other people in the room who later, and there are other individuals that she somehow knew of family members' deaths and the way they died very explicitly and in detail. She apparently was speaking multiple languages, Latin being one of them, which he had never spoken before. So he's went with some pretty bizarre shit. Yeah. And for one thing, I was just kind of curious, because I feel like we come across this a lot when we talk about ghost stories or anything like that, where you have a logical explanation for something, but sometimes there is no, at the time, logical explanation. There is nothing that really seems to fit. Now... I'm under the impression that there absolutely is. Whether or not we understand the phenomena at that point in time, or if we have the tools, that's another thing. So if you have a situation where the tools available say there's nothing that logically makes sense here, I don't think the default position should be demons 
I don't think the default right. position should be ghost. You know, I don't think it should be either or. Either I have the tools to solve it, or it's some random, you know, it's a the Babadook. Right. You know. <laughs> but it does bring up an interesting thing. When you have a person who is trained to look for psychiatric problems. Right. And who has witnessed things that, in their mind can only be explained through demonic possession. And the fact that it is a growing need. He talks about how that the United States is home to 50 stable exorcists, which is up from a, a measly 12 from only a decade ago. Oh, wow. So it's, you know, almost fivefold. And are these, like, Vatican-approved or, like, church-approved? Or how exactly do, do they rank? So here's what I found out about that. It's kind of weird. They don't... The Vatican does not track global or countrywide exorcism. Okay. And they're kind of hush-hush about stuff. And as far as I can tell, they don't have... They're not touting their own exorcist group. But what is kind of a big deal is that there's something called the International Association of Exorcists, which they actually have their own LinkedIn page, which I thought was kind of funny. Really? Yeah, so you can you can go to LinkedIn, and um, they're looking to get contacted by specifically Catholic priests. But the International Association of Exorcists is this group. It's over 400 members strong. And in 2014, Pope Francis formally recognized the group. Damn. Which was a big deal for the Catholic Church. Right. So from what I can tell, I'm sure they do have their own, you know, exorcists on staff. But it's not really like we're the, we're not championing that. But we're supporting this group that is championing that. Okay. And they have a really interesting history. It's not all that surprising to find out that it was founded by Italian priest, Catholic priest, okay. initially. Because somehow all the exorcists should always seem initially to be with the uh, Italians. Right, yeah. You know, so I thought that was kind of interesting. So they had a pretty interesting backstory in the fact that that's going on, that there's this international group that they're like the Ghostbusters for demons. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. No, I haven't either. But going back to that question, what do you... What do you? What are your thoughts on that? What do you think about it? About the group, or the existence of the group, or this guy's experiences, or which part? No, of it? about not being able to explain really weird shit and these demonic possession cases. And then, let's say A, he didn't give any clear cut examples here, though he actually does have a book that's coming out at the end of this year mm-hmm. that catalogs his twenty five years, which I think would be kind of interesting to check out. Yeah. But that being said, let's say case one, just the mere fact that you have a person who has spent, you know, 25 years looking at all these cases, looking at psychiatric cases, knows mental health and mental sickness intimately well, better than most people, and who has come up against things that they can't explain. I mean, right off the bat, I'll say I don't believe in demonic possession. So as far as having experiences that you can't explain, I have had experiences that I can't explain. I don't have a logical explanation for But with things like this, I mean, even being a professional in the mental health field and having all this background and all this training, I I started off as a psychology major. And one of the reasons why I left the program to pursue something else was because I didn't like how strictly everybody needed to be categorized and how everything seemed to need to fit in these very rigid boxes. And I feel like the psychology as a field, I mean, definitely at the time, I'm not sure how much it has evolved since then, but they really never focus on the extreme outliers. And I feel like 
Those are the most interesting cases to me. The extreme outliers who don't fit into any of these boxes, who we don't have a clear-cut, quote-unquote, scientific explanation for. So it's not that surprising to me that with his extremely long career and having gone on, I think he said like hundreds of cases or over a hundred of these cases, that he would see at least a couple things that didn't quite fit into his own worldview or be backed up by his training that he's had specifically. So as far as you mentioned that this woman started speaking Latin and then he said that she had never spoken Latin her entire life or heard it anywhere, but do we really know that 100%? Let's say we do. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I have an explanation for it. I really don't know. But I do think it's important to take into account that even these scientific fields have their limits and have things that haven't been properly explained yet or properly discovered yet. For sure. Now, let's go one step further. It's unexplained, so you give the okay to the priest to perform an exorcist. They get positive results. What do you make of that? I think it kind of, they kind of touch on that in the movie that we watched in The Last Exorcism, like right at the beginning when it's, uh, it's Reverend Cotton Marcus is the guy who is uh, like trying to disprove exorcisms, basically. And he says something along the lines of, uh, like the person filming him says, oh, so you're a fraud. Like after he says he doesn't believe in demons and he's like, no, I see myself as providing a service and I cure people of what ails them. And if what ails them happens to be the thought that they're being possessed by a demon and I can help that thought go away, then I've done a good thing. So, I mean, on that note, I don't necessarily see the harm in that. But then again, you have these cases like that we've been reading about and that we heard about in this movie. And then there's the, uh, the real life case that the exorcism of Emily Rose was based on where this girl was mentally ill and she was basically tortured through constant repetitive exorcisms to the point where she died of malnutrition and dehydration. So yeah. it's, where's the line? Exactly. It's a really, uh, it's a complicated subject. Yeah, it really is. Especially yeah. when the person or, I'd say particularly the person or the person's family, because at that point they're really the ones that are in charge of that situation or whoever's close to them. They ultimately feel at the end of the day or after being, let's say that they did do the due diligence of trying to find some mental illness or something that can be explained by modern medicine. Yeah. They've gone down every road they possibly can with zero results. Yeah. And at that point, the only thing they feel is an option is this idea of demonic possession and exercising the demon. It's really crazy and fucked up to think about it's sad it is it's really sad sad. yeah that one case in particular that the emily rose movie was based on that case was really really upsetting and they actually covered that on my favorite murder on one of their episodes like they spent that was one of their cases that they discussed because it was eventually ruled uh they they deemed it as a negligent homicide so this girl was essentially murdered over an extended period of time because they were consistently performing exorcisms and they were not getting positive results it wasn't working she was rapidly deteriorating and this was quite some time ago so i don't remember exactly what year this happened but we didn't have quite the same medical advancements that we have now but even now i feel like this stuff is still going on oh it is for sure yeah yeah that that case was in 1976 okay i thought yeah to a 23 year old girl and that was a uh, annalise yes. michelle 
know how to pronounce her last name. But yeah. I would say Michelle, but Michelle. I'm probably wrong. I don't know. And there was a number, another one that was very recent was a two-year-old boy in 2018. At least I think it was in 2018. What That's when the this fuck? person, it was, it's horrible. What but, made them think that a two-year-old boy was possessed? Well, there was this priestess, I guess. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Araceli Mesa. And she was the priest or priestess, suppose, of um, this congregation in Texas. The family had only been there for a short time going to that church. I don't know. There's no details I can find on where and why they thought a two-year-old was demonically possessed. Yeah, what the hell? And this priestess said she, and she, she had a, I, I looked into her. Because whenever I hear a story like this, the first thing I do is go look up the names and see if I can verify stuff to make sure I'm not just getting a bunch of focus focus on the internet. Smart. And then the other thing I do is I just, I want to find out more about these people. There's not a lot of information on the boy or the parents, and that's kind of understandable because you probably wouldn't want to have that. And it's a sensational story, so we always focus on the killer and not the victims. Right. Because that's the kind of society we live in. So there's a lot more information about this priestess, but she was this kind of self-defined prophet and she was almost like a miniature cult if you will okay she sounded like a real character she claimed that she was told by god that the way to cure this child was to starve him so they deprived this two-year-old of food refused to give him food for more than 20 days oh oh my god i don't even want to hear this yeah he died because of it there's people in the congregation that had tried to feed him, and they were, like, beaten away and told that they were defying God for doing it, trying to. And then following this, this, I have to say it, this bitch conducted a ceremony to try to bring the boy back from the dead. Are you shitting me? I am not shitting you. This was in 2018. 2018? This was caught on video in Texas. In Texas? In Texas. Holy shit. Yes. So... This is what Reverend Cotton Marcus was trying to say in his, why he was now trying to defraud these type of things. Right. Or expose them as frauds. Yeah, because there it's was because a death of a child. there is some serious shit wrong here. This is not some innocent thing. Yeah. This isn't a placebo effect. Yeah, it's not like lighting some sage. No. So, yeah. I'm inclined... You read these stories. First off, I think it's complete bullshit. Yeah. I think the reasoning behind all of it is complete bullshit. Yeah. And I think it really just comes down to a fact that humans are so bad at grappling with the idea that they don't understand something. Exactly. So they have to make this bullshit up about it to prop up some kind of false belief that they have control over the situation. Yeah. To the detriment of these people and these families. 100%. It's honestly terrifying how common cases like this are. Like, I just read about one today that happened in uh, Nicaragua in 2017. This woman was beaten and burned alive during a quote-unquote exorcism. And she was a, she was mentally ill. She was hallucinating. She probably schizophrenic. Right. And she was burned alive. Because right. they thought that they received a message that... She would need to be cleansed by fire. It's insane. It really is. But yeah, I really my blood like, pressure's going up. <laughs> I just like this guy's background. I thought it was really interesting. The uh, the doctor, Dr. Richard 
Gallagher. Okay. But one thing that he he notes in here is that the official Catholic catechism holds that demons are sentient and possess their own wills. As they are fallen angels, they are also craftier than humans. That's how they sow confusion and see doubt, after all. And that's just a big red flag of any kind of conspiracy or something like that, when yeah. the information that you have is wrong because of the conspiracy. Right. It's impossible to disprove that. If you try to disprove it, it's because the demons are sowing so doubt. Right. So it's the perfect fucking argument on their end. You cannot, it's impossible to disprove that. And everything you do to prove it or disprove it is just proving them correct. Yeah. That is a big fucking red flag, people. If you ever have an argument that is this open-ended argument that in itself and trying to rebut it, it only strengthens that argument on its face, you know that it is a logical fallacy. And you know that you are dealing with some nefarious, probably nefarious, but at nothing else, completely illegitimate and illogical statements and arguments. So, steer clear. Please. Yeah, my blood pressure's going up, too. I know, I Let's can't... talk about the movie. <laughs> yeah, so this subject is not fun. This movie, on the other hand, is super fun. Super so fun. Agreed. Sorry. Let's dive in. No, that's. I think that's extremely important to talk about, especially because, like you said, it's on the rise quite a bit more than, definitely more than I thought. So I, I think it's important to bring that up and make that known, especially with the kids. I can't, oh, I can't stand no. that shit. I cannot handle that. I know. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be Captain Buzzkill. No, I think it, it's really important. Just curious, like what happened to that woman? Is she in prison? She got 99 years to Good. life. Good. Imprisonment. I was actually really afraid you were going to tell me that she's like still out there practicing and that she somehow got away with it. She's running out of daycare. Jesus. <laughs> I wouldn't be that surprised, sadly. Yeah. But that's good news. Yeah, this is not a fun subject, but this movie is super fun. So it really is. Let's talk about some fun shit now. Please, let's, let's get do into that. it. Yeah, like I said, I'm sorry to be Captain Buckkill. No, I just I think started it's looking important. into that yeah. and I. It's really interesting. There's a lot of fucked up shit. And I... Yeah. Had to say something. Well, that's kind of what this movie is about, too. So I think this is a fantastic pick. And I've seen this movie so many times now. I know you and I watched it together several times. I went and saw it when it came out in theaters with my dad and my brother. And we absolutely loved it. It was so much fun. But I just think it is not only at the top of my list for like great found footage movies, but it is so original and so creative and well acted and just a... I think it's a fantastic horror movie. I do too. Like I said when I initially picked this, I don't like exorcism movies. Yeah, or found footage. I hate found footage movies. Yeah, so that's a... And I think this movie is a great movie. Yeah. And it had all the potential in the world to be... Terrible. A piece of shit. Yeah. But it took everything that it needed to seriously enough to make it work. Yeah. With the acting and the dialogue and the development... The effects, and also at the same time having an element of fun, but not campy. Exactly. I think the, especially like the first 10 to 15 minutes of this movie are my favorite. I do too, and it really, really solidifies just that fun element to yeah, it. Yeah, very strong opening. Very strong opening. So you have that whole, you're sitting on that foundation Yeah. of kind of a, a fun movie, a fun guy. You, you know, I really enjoy Captain... Captain. <laughs> oh, Captain, my Captain. 
Reverend. Reverend. I can't get the right name. <laughs> Captain Reverend, whatever. Reverend Marcus Cotton. Cotton Marcus. Oh my gosh. Cotton Marcus? Yes. Got it right that you time. You got it. He's fantastic. So you get this character and a, and a fun upbringing of what his background is and what's going here, and it kind of gives you a false sense of security and a false sense of what you're getting into. Exactly, yeah. He is extremely, right off the bat, he's extremely charismatic, extremely charming, and it's filmed, I mean, most found footage movies are filmed documentary style, but this one truly feels like you are watching a documentary. They have like the little captions that show up and tell you who each person is. It starts off almost interview style, and then you're getting snippets of his wife talking and his father and different people in his congregation. You get glimpses of a day in the life of Cotton Marcus and his Mm -hmm. sermons. So it's very, it feels incredibly believable. Absolutely. And realistic. There's one of uh, my favorite scenes in that is he's talking about how he got into the whole church thing in the first place. You know, he come from a, a background of several generations where all, you know, his father and his grandfather and his grandfather's father have all been reverends and worked with the church and sermons and these kind of small, smaller rural towns. So he just kind of grew up into it, and he's loved it while he was doing it. But he's, again, become kind of disingenuous with it. He's had some changes, and he's been going through the motions, and he's talking how, you know, I can just go so I can go up and say anything to these people. Yeah. Just throw on some Jesuses and some hallelujahs and keep it going, and they'll cheer you right along. Yeah, like, they're, they're not, not paying listening. attention. They're yeah. not even listening. And the, <laughs> the woman who's interviewing him in the camera, she's like, oh, come on, you're, you're being a little, you're not giving these people enough credit. And he's like, I'll prove it to you. I'll uh, I'll talk about anything. Pick something. And he's like, you know what? I'll talk about uh, a, a cooking recipe. Yeah, I'm going to throw in a banana bread recipe. I'll throw in a banana bread recipe as soon as I get back in there. And I guarantee you they're all cheering me up. No one will notice. <laughs> <laughs> and he's doing his thing and blah, blah. And he's like, and then you can throw two ripe, <laughs> two ripe bananas in a bowl. And you smash them up with some bread. And you put them in the oven for 400 degrees. And you put it on. And you have banana bread. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, do you believe Christ is your Lord and Savior? Okay. Yeah. Do you believe that if you take two eggs, three bananas, yeah. and throw them together, make banana bread, blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> oh, man, I love that That was that great. I love that actor. I didn't know who he was when we first saw this movie because, of course, with found footage, you want to choose people who are relatively unknown just to kind of make it more realistic. But they needed somebody. Uh, I was kind of looking into it a little bit. They needed somebody who was a great actor around that age that they needed, like in their 40s, who wasn't known. And Eli Roth, who was the producer, was like, who the hell exists that has those qualifications? And then they found this guy, <laughs> Patrick Fabian, who plays Cotton. And he was absolutely perfect. And then, of course, we now know him as the asshole lawyer in Better Call Saul. And he's great in that, too. He is. And, once, and completely different characters. Yeah, yeah. As you said, when we had seen this in the past, I didn't know who it was. I didn't really think about it. Yeah. Retrospectively. We had seen Better Call Saul, and he was great in that. But then when you turn around and realize that's who it is in this movie yeah. and how good he is in that character. And the whole time I was watching him, I was waiting for it to kind of wear off or something to be different. But I love his character. It seems so genuine. Yeah. And I was very impressed with his acting. I am too. And that's a. I feel like that's such a hard line to walk for a character like that because... He's kind of a... I kept think, getting the word schmoozing into my head. Like, with how he kind of woos these people and charms these people. Especially when he actually gets to the house that we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. And he's talking to this father. But even when he is... 
being, uh, his wife refers to him as like a performer and a showman. Even when he's doing this, there's nothing about him that seems fraudulent. No, I, I take it in the same realm of you have salesmen that are doing it just because they want to take your money. Yeah. And then you have salesmen that are super passionate about what they're selling. Yeah. And I kind of feel like he's the latter. Or it's not disingenuous. They're not trying to, you know, flamboozle you. Yeah. Necessarily. You know, it's all good intention. And I think he likes making people feel better and making people feel good, even though he has kind of uh, suffered, I guess you could describe it as a loss of faith or a dose of reality, either one. I think he calls it a loss of faith at some point. And the way we see it as an audience is you have these real life, you have these real life problems that he's facing like he talks about how his uh his son was born hearing impaired and he had some kind of severe health problem where they didn't know if he was going to live or not and his wife is talking about this too and the doctor ends up saving his son's life and he finds out that he's going to live and he says like the moment that he realized that he had kind of lost his faith and and it was because of a positive thing. A lot of times you hear like people losing their faith because of something horrible that happens and they think like why would God let this happen? But in this case, his first instinct was to thank the doctor. In his mind, it wasn't God that cured his son. It was his instinct was to thank this doctor and that kind of made him think critically about what he was doing and the yeah, work he was doing. System. And then you have the contrast of this little boy he was talking about who was suffocated during an exorcism and that was when he realized I don't want to do this anymore. I want no part of this. Right. So he's like, the whole purpose of this quote unquote documentary is that he's on a mission to disprove that exorcisms are a real thing. He, he wants to prove that it's a hoax, prove that it's bullshit. And he basically makes a pact that, you know, I get all these letters, all these requests. I'm going to open one at random and we are going to bring the film crew, bring the cameras. I'm going to perform the exorcism and I'm going to show you all the tricks I do. I'm going to show you how this works and show you... And everybody out there that this is bullshit. Right. And he says, if this saves even one child from being suffocated or beaten to death, then it's worth it to me. And you are on board with him. You're like, hell yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and so when he does it, he's another funny scene where he's like, before he even opens it, he's like, I bet you it's, uh, you know, we're going to see some failure (laughs) of uh, crops. Livestock. Livestock getting killed or hurt, you know, blah, blah. And yep, yep. Check and check. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he's like circling and highlighting things. (laughs) Oh, and really quick, before he goes off on this exorcism journey, he's talking to his dad and his dad has performed over 150 exorcisms and he has this book. He says there's only like 20 of them in the world and it's called the Hortus Delicarum. And he says this is like, uh, it's basically an encyclopedia of demons. Right. So, uh, and how to get rid of them. So Cotton takes this book with him to this farm that he's going to perform the exorcism. exorcism. Yeah. So he takes this book with him. So that kind of comes into play later in kind of a funny way. Yeah. And then another really funny scene is along the way, they're driving and it's even a more rural part of Louisiana, I think it is. Yeah. Louisiana. And he's talking with the the film crew and saying how this part of the state is pretty well known for having these kind of things go on and having these beliefs. Yeah. And he's like, I, you know, you go and ask five people about an exorcism around here or some kind of demonic possession. You're going to get 10 stories. Yeah. And they're like, do we have time to stop? And he's like, yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> and they stop off and every single person they ask 
just randomly in gas stations and everything has this <laughs> crazy ass story about this stuff. And my favorite one is there's a woman pumping gas and he's asking her about this cult and where they were and all this. And he's like, oh, was that next to where the uh, alien abduction was? And she's like, oh, no, that was over here. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she's like, it's a portal to hell. hell. <laughs> <laughs> I also love when they're leaving and he slaps the Jesus fish decal on the back yes. of his car. <laughs> it's like, all right, we're in business. <laughs> oh, that's really thinking, That's probably I, that's a good technique. <laughs> Slapping the If you're the in certain one. areas of the country. Yeah. yeah. Just to blend in. Just to blend in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was Camouflage. clever. Super funny. Urban camouflage. <laughs> so then it starts to get just a little bit creepy as he's going like deeper into this rural swamp area of Louisiana. So they're kind of not 100% sure about where they're going. And it's just three of them. So it's Cotton and then his colleague, uh, Iris, and then the cameraman, Danny. So right. it's just the three of them. And they stop because they see this young boy coming the opposite way. They kind of flag him down and... I've seen this kid in other movies. I can't think off the top of my head of what I've seen him in. I think he was in Get Out and a couple other things. He always plays a creep, but he basically pretends like he's going to give them directions. He's like, oh yeah, it's up here. Uh, You're going to want to make a U-turn, turn around and keep going, and you want to get the hell out of here go back to where you came from. Yeah. And then he kind of smiles and like walks off. And they're like, oh, sweet kid. And then he starts throwing like rocks and dirt clods at the back of their car as they're heading to this farm. And then, of course, when they get to the farm, they realize that this kid, his name's Caleb, is the son of the man who wrote Cotton. Right. So he's like, great, <laughs> this kid again. Yeah, he wasn't get out. Okay. Yeah, so you have that. That's kind of an ominous thing to begin with because he's just, it almost seems more of a, what do they say in Cabin of the Woods? The Harbinger. Yeah, it's the Harbinger, but it's also... A little bit of zombie redneck torture. A little bit of zombie little redneck, bit, yeah. you know. A little bit of a deliverance vibe. Exactly. And then he gets there and... You definitely know the situation's not necessarily right, or it's a little bit off, but nothing demonic. It's essentially you have an incredibly fundamentalist Christian who has experienced the death of his wife recently, like in the last year or so, I think. Yeah, she died of uh, breast cancer, I think Breast cancer. And here he is left to raise a young teenage daughter and his son. And he's absolutely disillusioned with the church as it stands now, what they're teaching, and modern society. Not so much that you think he's ready to lock her up and throw away the key or anything like that, but he's obviously a very concerned parent and is very conservative. Yes, that's an understatement. I mean, he even felt that her Sunday school and the church that they were going to was not going in the direction he wanted. So he pulled her out of there. He's keeping her at home and he's homeschooling her. Right. In a lot of ways, he's almost the complete opposite of Cotton and went down a completely different path because here you have Cotton who, you know, the situation with his son kind of put him on the path he's on now. These doctors were able to save his son. And Lewis, this father, actually makes a remark later about like scornfully talking about these big city doctors that Cotton is trying to bring in. And it's like these quote unquote big city doctors couldn't save his wife. So I think because of this, this was part of what turned Lewis away from science and away from the path that Cotton Marcus is on. So right away, these two kind of clash because they're almost complete opposites of each other. Yeah, they both experienced basically a medical condition in their family. Yeah. 
with opposite result. Right. And as a consequence, it led them on different paths religiously. Yeah. And then Lewis Hertham, who plays Lewis, I thought he was a fantastic actor. Really, all of the acting in this was great. He's great. And but I he really plays, felt for him. Yeah, he does. Everyone was good, and I didn't feel like anybody's character was over the top, even though he's supposed to be a pretty over-the-top character. You believe it, you though. You believe it, and you also like believe that he genuinely feels like he's doing the best thing for his family. Yeah. Because sometimes you get the impression that they're doing it almost out of spite or as a form of punishment. Yeah. Almost like having to pay a pittance. You know, the children have to. Or, yeah. But I don't feel that, or that's not the impression that I got with him of why he's doing these things and why he pulled her out. And I get nothing but an overwhelming sense of love for his family and for his daughter in particular and wanting nothing but the best for her. Definitely. I feel like this movie is very good at emotionally manipulating the audience because you. I feel like you go exactly where they want you to go and you... You're 100% behind Cotton. You're 100% behind his cause. You really feel for Lewis. You understand where he's coming from. And then a little bit down the road, not even too far from here, when you hear some things that Caleb has to say, and then when you find out what may be going on later, it completely flips the script and you feel completely differently. It's got a cool mystery vibe, almost like a murder mystery vibe. Yeah. Where you have all these different characters that are giving you different information. And you have to try to piece it together. You have the Reverend and them, they're trying to piece it together, but you're trying to piece it together as an audience, too. Right. And you don't know who to trust, because initially you don't trust Caleb, because he seems like a little shit. He's trying to turn you away from the get-go. Yeah, and then you realize, like, oh, he's just protecting his sister. Or is he? Is he, yeah. Because he also then later seems to be manipulative again. Right. It goes back and forth. It goes back and forth, and so you really don't know who to trust and what information is genuine versus information that is disgenuine versus information that is genuine but falsely informed. Definitely. And then, of course, we have Nell, the subject of this letter, who is absolutely adorable. A doll. She, I don't say that very often. I don't often. say that. She I actually wrote doll. that down. I wrote, <laughs> Nell is a doll. And I hate when people say that about women. I hate when they say it to me. She's but so she's, adorable. She's so cute and so her. sweet. And that, that's another thing. This movie like just knows how to rope you in emotionally. You love her immediately. She's so sweet. She's so genuine. And then you look at her and you think, okay, there's no way that this girl is possessed. There's something else going on here. So then uh, pretty soon after Cotton gets to this farm, the Sweetser farm, the last name is Sweetser, he gets the tour, he sees where the livestock were injured, he sees the barn where Nell supposedly goes at night and does God knows what. To these barnyard animals. Yeah, so he's getting basically the, the lowdown on what's been going on, and he essentially says, like, okay, well, let's let's get started right away. I'd like to do the exorcism. And he kind of starts behind the scenes showing us some of his tools that he's brought with him. So first he gives this, like, or he's uh, feeling the back of Nell's neck. And he's like, oh, oh, do you feel that? And then he has Lewis and the son, Caleb, come over and feel it. And he's like, this is deeper than normal, right? And she's starting to kind of freak out, like, oh, I, I guess it's a little deeper. So he's kind of, like, playing into their beliefs. And then he puts her feet in a bath of water. He kind of discreetly tosses something in there to make it bubble. And it's look like almost it's like boiling. an alka or something like that. Yeah. You know? And he's like, oh, that'll be the temperature change. This is to be expected. And then he's got the 
battery-operated crucifix that when he pushes a button, steam comes out so that it looks like it's burning. He's also got electrodes on his fingertips so he can grab her head shock her a little and bit. Like, shock her so she goes into convulsions a little bit. He's got a speaker equipped with over 800 demon sounds. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's got he's got things to make he's the got, mirrors and the bed shake. Yeah, like. you got the bed shaky thing and all kinds of good stuff. But that, yeah. the crucifix that smokes at the end is my favorite one. Oh my god, I know. I love how he just looks at the camera and goes... <laughs> and just smiles. Yeah. And then they show him you use all these tools in the exorcism. Yeah. Or in the exorcism. It's really And fun. it's all very successful. Oh, one thing we should back up and say real quick is that he identifies the demon. Oh, right. Abalon. With Abalon. Or Abalam. Abalam, right. Yeah. What about that Abalam? So he identifies what demon it is using that book. What's it called? The Horticus Delicarum. It's a pretty cool name. It's pretty badass. I don't yeah. know what it means in Latin, but who knows? Didn't didn't <laughs> learn Latin. So they identify Abalam. He told he tells Lewis that Abalam is known for defiling the innocent, and the only way to circumvent this situation is to perform this exorcism. Yeah, right. and I love, it cracked me up on that part when he, to hammer this point home, he points at the picture and he's like, look at him. Yeah. <laughs> look at him. <laughs> Just look at him. What an evil dick he is. He's defiling your daughter right. as we speak. <laughs> so I think that's an important caveat. Yeah. So he goes through everything successful. Everyone's like, oh, okay, well, we've got what we came for. They're happy. The reverend got his money. He was able to help do do this public service to the family. Yeah. As okay. well as perform these actions for the documentary crew. He also pretends to get a message from God because Caleb confides to him that Lewis is an alcoholic. So That's he says, a good point. Yeah. Yes. So he says, okay. I have I have a message for you, Lewis. I know the pain that you carry after your wife's death. And God wants me to tell you, do not pick up that bottle. Do not drown your sorrows. She's with him. She's okay. Like, you don't have to drink anymore. Don't do this anymore. And then he genuinely looks like, He's received the message. He's like, I won't, I won't. He's got tears in his eyes. So Cotton leaves feeling like he has truly, completely helped this family. But then Caleb knows better. And he's like sarcastically saying, oh, all our problems are gone now. He knows it's bullshit. He saw him throw the tablet into the water. and But he's also four. Yeah. Because he's like, you know what? I, I think it's bullshit. Yeah. And I think my fa- my dad's just a religious nut. Yeah. So you're helping him. You're yeah. helping me. Cool. And then he's he's doubtful about it, but he's hopeful that it'll help. Right. Yeah, and then they leave and go to a motel five miles down the road. Yeah, so everything seems fine, and then all of a sudden, Nell shows up in the middle of the night in some kind of trance, and she's able to find their hotel, find their room, and it just gets pretty fucking weird and bananas after that. Yeah. There's, I don't want to do a blow-by-blow, but essentially you get to a point where it seems like maybe she's been sexually abused. You get information that they take her to the hospital when they find her at the hotel in a trance. Yeah. They find that later on that she is pregnant. Yeah, over a voicemail. Yeah, from the doctor, from the hospital or whatever. Yeah. And um, whatever medication that they gave her, don't take it because pregnant women can't take that. We didn't know she was pregnant at the time, so don't give her that. And now we know that she's been homeschooled. We know that she hasn't had any contact with anybody. And the only conclusion that the film crew and Marcus, or Reverend Cotton Marcus, can conclude is that she has been raped by her father. 
Right. Which, again, is where it flips you on your head because you would not think that of this guy. Yeah, I thought that storyline was extremely compelling, especially the first time that I saw this, where, I mean, you feel the whole time, you know this this can't be a real possession. You know that she's going through some shit. There's things going on with this family that we're only scratching the surface of. And they get that voicemail making you think it's this tragic abuse story. And other things are happening with Nell throughout this whole period of time. So she's complaining of all these ailments. Like at one point she says her throat's a little sore because she wakes up screaming all the time. So she's got some shit going on. And then she shows up in this trance-like state, which is not super uncommon if you've undergone a horrific trauma. Right. So they go to this Pastor Manley not knowing where else to turn. And this is before they find out that she's pregnant. But they're saying, you know, we really want a psychiatrist to come to the farm, but Lewis would never agree to it. Is there any way you can convince him? So at this point, Pastor Manley says that he's concerned that Nell had stopped coming to this Sunday school, that she's homeschooled, that... A girl who has just lost her mother really shouldn't be isolated to this degree. And he agrees to come to the farm later down the road and bring his psychiatrist friend with him. Well, he specifically says, I will agree if you can get her father to welcome me to the house. Yeah. Because he's beating her in the bush. He's like, I don't want to talk shit, but we had a fucking blowout and the guy basically disowned me you know so if you can get him to welcome me back i'll go ahead and try i'm friends with a a psychiatrist from the local hospital one of the bigger ones and i will more than happy to call him and get him down here if you want me to initially talk to him and we'll do it so now they're going to go back and try to get the father on board and from there it's just one thing after they get there caleb's face is just sliced to shit he has this huge like joker-esque cut from the edge of his lip to his ear that Nell gave him and apparently it was we, we come in on this scene they come in on this scene and so we don't know what the fuck just happened we don't know if it was Lewis that did it to him we don't know if it was Nell that did it to him or if it was self-defense yeah what was going on the father's pissed off because his daughter's still possessed he wants them to perform this exorcism they want to try to get a doctor or you know a psychiatrist in here and they also at this point have gotten information at it's like right at this moment they get a phone call saying that she's pregnant and this is when lewis leaves to take caleb to the hospital right while they're gone yes and the reason why he left with caleb was because caleb slipped cotton a note that says do not leave her alone with him right so at this point they're fucking concerned big time concerned and their their goal is to get nell out of this situation oh i got yeah so she didn't know they were pregnant but they got that note so they're trying to just keep them away yeah. We have the son saying, do not leave her alone with him. So Caleb and the dad are both gone traveling to the hospital. They're going to be gone for quite a while. Then they, they start hearing crazy shit throughout the house. Yeah. They hear a baby crying. And that's where you have the whole, like, really creepy scene. Where I liked that. She's in her room. There's nobody else on this property. And they just hear this baby crying. And they go up and open up the door, and it's like nothing, nothing's going there. on. And they shut it, and they hear Latin. They hear languages of, like, two different people speaking different languages to each other. Yeah. And they open the door, and nothing's going and on. And then at one point, they hear that baby crying noise again, and she's in the bathroom drowning a doll. Yes. And she's also speaking Latin to herself yeah. in, like, in a demonic voice. I really liked that. And it's shortly after this that they get the, the message... About her being pregnant in the hospital. So now they're really concerned about why 
as things are starting in their eyes to add up. Things are starting to make sense. And now their mission is, okay, how do we get her out of here? Right. Away from this guy. Yeah, and at the same time, Nell is basically losing her shit. They're starting to see these demonic possessions. Things She's happening. Dangerous. She's dangerous. And at one point we see her steal the camera and go out to the barnyard and smash the shit out of their cat. Yeah, that was upsetting. Which, is, yeah, for cat lovers, it's disturbing. And then right before that, I think it's important to note, especially for the ending, she is kind of an artist. She likes to draw. And she had made these pictures. So one picture was this white cat who had been, like, stabbed and bloodied and was obviously dead. And then the second picture was Reverend Cotton holding up a cross in front of a fire, a massive fire with just darkness in the background. And then we have... Uh, they're all, like, reading these out to each other. So Cotton is like, I'm in the fire. Iris says, I'm in a million pieces. And then they're like, Danny, you get your head chopped off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all of these things are being, like, drawn out in pictures. And then they realize, like, okay, we have to get this child out of here. But we also might die because she's obviously insane. Yeah. And the only one who's really starting to voice concern about this whole situation in the terms of self-preservation is Daniel. So Danny is starting to voice concerns of saying, you know what, I don't feel safe being around this unstable person who is drawing pictures of me with my head cut off. Yeah. Like, I'm not I okay did with not this. sign up for this. <laughs> you know, and Iris and Marcus are like, well we can't just leave her. But Danny's like, fuck man, we'll come back later. Yeah. You know, this isn't we're not cut out for this. Call CPS. We are a documentary crew, not the the local authorities. Yeah. But too little too late. And from this point, we start getting information. They find, they talk to Nell. Nell says that she was actually had relations with a local boy. That's why she's pregnant. Yeah, and this is after they attempt the second exorcism. And the only reason why they do the second exorcism is because Lewis is basically making vague threats, saying things like, if you don't save my daughter's soul, I will, indicating that maybe he's planning to kill her. We don't know. So out of desperation, Cotton agrees and says, I'll do the exorcism. So this is when we start getting like the classic body contortions that you have to have in an exorcism movie. She's breaking her own fingers. She's speaking as Abilam, this demon. And then that's when she just breaks down crying, saying she isn't innocent. And then that's when they get the story from her of this boy that right. supposedly got her pregnant. Yeah. So they start trying to look into this, and they find that there is a boy But he hasn't seen her since the last time they all had a party at the Reverend's place. Reverend Manley, who says he hasn't seen this girl in over three years. And this kid's gay. So now we have very conflicting information again. Where we were told that this boy knocked her up. This boy is gay and says, I didn't fucking know her. Yeah, And I met her once over at the Reverend's house less than a year ago. Reverend says he hasn't seen her in over a year. Three years. So now we know that Reverend Manley is a fucking liar. Yeah, or everybody's a liar. Or everybody's a liar. So we're getting all this information. So at this point, they're on a mission to get back to the house. Because now, not only do they have the situation with the dad, but now they have something going on with this pastor. And they know that it's not right. And they know that they just sent the pastor down there. To go assist with this situation. So they are flying like bats out of hell to get back there to help Nil. 
they're basically going to kidnap her because the dad had already yes. chased them out with a shotgun. Right. So they, they're on a mission and they decided bygones be bygones, whatever the fucking results, we're not going to leave her there with this information in hand. Like, we cannot do that. Yeah, so they get back to the house and Nell is actually sitting on the front steps kind of in that trance state again. And they try and pick her up to get her into the car, and she basically attacks them and runs off. So then they go in through the house, all the lights are out, it's completely dark, and the walls have been completely covered with what looks like blood and these like satanic symbols. So there's pentagrams, there's different runes it looks like, all through the house. They go out through the back to the woods behind the house, and they see firelight and hear chanting. So they walk up to see this horrific scene of the first thing they see is this massive fire. And then there are all these people cloaked and hooded. There's Nell lying on a table on her back screaming and it looks like she's giving birth. And then the woman who had worked with Pastor Manley is helping deliver this baby. Then we see Lewis in the back and he is blindfolded and tied up. And then we see Pastor Manley is the one who is leading this ritual. So they're like, holy shit. And then Nell gives birth to this red, spiky-looking creature that they then pick up and throw into the fire, which causes it to just erupt into this massive inferno. And at this point, we have a close-up on Reverend Marcus's face, on Cotton's face, and everything that he has just told us and showed us comes crashing down around him we see his face come back in full force as he sees this impossible horrific scene playing out in front of him and then he grabs his crucifix that he still has holds it over his head and runs out towards the fire and it's exactly like the picture that Nell had painted right that was a super cool shot it was so he just runs out screaming so we're we assume immediately that he's done for i think he gets like engulfed in flames yeah so then the rest of the cult members come running towards the trees and at this point danny and iris turn around and try and get the fuck out of there they're running through the woods so then iris gets cut down with an axe by one of these cult members and they're just hacking at her like crazy so then that's her picture getting hacked into pieces and then danny's the last one he's running you can hear him breathing and then i think he trips or something does he trip no, no, he just, at one point, he's running around, doesn't know what to do, and he turns around, and you just see Caleb. Yeah, and he has, like, a like a or sickle. Or, yeah, you know. and he just slashes at his head, which, you know, Danny gets his head cut off in the right. picture. So then he falls to the ground, the camera falls, and the credits roll. That's the end of the movie. So, bitch and ending. I really like the ending. So let's kind of dive into that a little bit. It's a really interesting ending, and... I love this kind of ending where it turns out like Satan is real. There's a cult that's been planning this the whole time. And, you know, watching this again for maybe the fourth or fifth time, I couldn't remember like why they were called to this place and why they would be needed for this ritual. But then I realized they weren't needed at all. It was just a, a really unfortunate case of wrong place and wrong time. Because as we find out, seeing Lewis tied up and blindfolded, Lewis was genuine. He was not involved in this. Not at all. Not at all. He really thought his daughter was possessed and that he needed help, and he was right the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. And the person who was confrontational in the first place, Caleb, was in on it. Was in on it. So what the fuck is going on there? Like, how did... It just makes me wonder the mechanics behind all this and how all this was orchestrated and how they got Caleb in on it and... 
How do entities cult operate? It's crazy. So it's kind of a, a Rosemary's Baby situation, I guess, which this actually made me want to watch Rosemary's Baby. It's one of my favorites. It's very but, reminiscent of that. Yeah. I mean, so many things are. It was so influential. But of course, you have this young woman who was forcibly impregnated by Satan or a demon or the spawn of Satan. And she's just a pawn in this plan. So, of course, she isn't fully involved in it either. She actually was possessed. So it is interesting that they were able to get Caleb involved in this. I also thought it was, uh, I like the fact that although our reverend, I'm going to call him our reverend, feels as though he's just ad-libbing in some ways and placating to what he feels is helping these people, that he was able to pick up on what demon was actually processing her. Like, he was looking at all the signs. Oh, shit. And he was right. Yeah. And he actually identified it. Consciously, he was doing it because it was ticking out the boxes and it made the most sense for what he, information he had. Yeah. But at the same time, retrospectively, he identified it because all these things were taking place that the demon does. I didn't even think of that. That's a great point. I mean, here you have a book that has hundreds of demons in it. Right. And he just happened to pick the right one. That's I thought really that cool. was interesting. So I guess, yeah. in a way, if you want to play... No pun intended, but playing devil's advocate, <laughs> really seriously, no pun intended, <laughs> you could argue that God was working through Reverend by identifying this demon accurately so that he could try to help fend it off, but failed miserably. Right. <laughs> Evil triumphs again. <laughs> Every fucking time. So I do really like this ending. I think it's really fun. It's really cool. I love how it kind of ties back to the paintings that Nell had made or the drawings that she made. Really neat little callback there and really cool imagery. But I'm wondering how you feel about it. Like, do you... Because I almost feel like as a horror movie, this movie... I wouldn't call this movie scary, but that's just... I feel like that's entirely subjective because I personally don't find possession movies to be scary. Mm -hmm. But... The first time watching it, when we thought that this was some kind of horrific abuse situation, that was way more horrifying to me than the possibility that there was this insane cult who impregnated this girl with a demon. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of a relief, to be honest. That it was just, oh, it's just Satan. It's just a fucking Satan. It's Satan, yeah. It's not real world horrors. Yeah. So I almost do feel like, especially with the subject matter that we were talking about before we got into the movie with these real life exorcisms and these murders, essentially, the message definitely would have been more impactful and more powerful if they had stuck with that storyline. But I did like the ending. So I feel like either way or either direction the movie could have gone, I'd, I'd still be happy with. But I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what, what would you have preferred? Well, I have to say, I didn't really think about it all that much the first few times that we've seen this yeah. or watched it. And I wasn't thinking about it as much when we watched it this time either. But doing that research and from the perspective of the the doctor that I mentioned earlier and these cases, I honestly feel that in portraying a complicated situation, phenomena, if you will, or action that people take and it being a complicated and convoluted thing that has the this multifaceted aspects to it and the fact that you have true hardcore believers that believe in this you have families that are afflicted by terrible things that they are just looking to get some kind of help with and solace you have people that are skeptics and are not interested in this or don't believe it at all and have nothing but the desire to prove these people wrong, which I think that kind of plays the part of the documentary people to begin with. 
you know, they're in it to try to expose this, where you have the Reverend that is trying to do this as a more good-natured thing. It's not just the out of spite that he's trying to prove it wrong. It's He has a, a, a given passion of what he's trying to do and is trying to prevent the abuse of people that are mentally ill, yeah. essentially. And then you have the situations in which things happen that nobody can fucking explain. Yeah. Those are all realities. Every single one of those is an aspect to modern exorcism. And so I think that had they not... Obviously, they did it balls to the walls to make it more fun. Right. But had they not done something that was unexplainable, it would have left out one of the most important elements of what drives the whole exorcism culture and belief structure. Because if you if you didn't have that, then all you have is mental illness and misguided people. Yeah. Without enough facts or without willing to listen to reason. But it's it's missing that last and crucial element and that there are things that at this point in time, in these circumstances, even a well-accredited psychiatrist and doctor can look you in the eye and say, I don't know. I have no explanation for you. They took that idea and just turned it up to 11. Yes. That's what I mean. Like, they they <laughs> yeah. took it and they rammed it. I think they, yeah, they wanted it to be fun, essentially. Yeah. And I, like I said, I love that ending and I love endings like that. But I did kind of find myself wishing this time around that they had kind of gone the other direction with it. Or I just felt like it would have been more emotionally impactful that way. But as a whole, I feel like this movie was more intended to be fun than it was to be emotionally impactful. So for that, like I, I give it really high marks because I really enjoyed it. I love watching this movie. I always have fun with it. And I still think it's so incredibly creative and original and fun. Absolutely. I really like it. And this is another great PG 13 horror movie. It is. And I always forget that it is, but it's, it's great. I always have a really good time with it. Good one for the kids. Yeah. It's a hoot. The only other complaint I have about it, and I know we kind of talked about this as we were watching it, this is just, you know, as somebody who loves found footage movies, there are certain elements that I feel you have to have in a found footage movie to make it more believable. And I don't feel like found footage movies should have a soundtrack. And by having a soundtrack, I mean, you know, it's one thing if all you're hearing is whatever music or sounds the characters in the movie are listening to. I for, There's a term for that. I forgot what it is. But it's like when the, the soundtrack of the music you're hearing is what the characters are hearing. And in this movie, you have it overlaid almost like an actual documentary would be with sound. But with the way that the movie ends, it was hard for me to kind of reconcile the way that it ended. And then the fact that you have this soundtrack in certain parts. You have like eerie music and you have guitar and banjo playing and these different sections of music. So I'm like, okay, did the did the cult members just leave the tape there and somebody found it and overlaid it with music? Or, like, how did this happen? So I, I guess that could be the case because it's found footage. Somebody found it, quote-unquote. But I personally don't like when there is a soundtrack in a found footage movie. I, I do wish that they had taken that out. Well, on that same note, you mentioned in the beginning that it feels like a documentary because they're yeah. showing captions and who these people are, and somebody edited that. Yeah. You so know. it's... And I, I have to say that if it had to be one way or the other, because you have to think about it from the perspective of it 
being the first time watching. Yeah. Right? And the fact that you're trying to portray this as a documentary, and if you take too many, if it is an actual documentary, they're going to put that time in yeah. to do that and kind of lure you into a sense of, you know, somebody filmed this, things happened, it was edited, we put it together, here it is. Yeah. As any other documentary would be. That's true. So they kind There's of lure you into this sense of you're watching a regular documentary, yeah. you're going to see some things happen, and then at the end, that's why it's more of a surprise even though, I mean, it's obviously not that big of a surprise, but that's why it's more of a surprise that everyone dies at the end because you got the impression that you were watching a legitimate documentary. Right. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. But, I mean, for the beginning part with the captions and the intros and all that stuff, I guess that that seems a little bit more plausible to me because this is before they went out into the middle of nowhere in the swamp with just the three people. So they very well could have been editing as they go or making this in segments over a long period of time. So I guess that makes more sense to me, but that's a fair assessment. It's just a kind of a personal preference thing. It does take me out of it a little bit when I'm watching a found footage and there's like a, a soundtrack or Absolutely. some kind of weird cut that I feel isn't possible or doesn't belong there. Yeah, it's just it's disingenuine. Yeah, that's it, it did kind of take me out of it a little bit. But, I mean, that's that's really the only issue that I had with it. It's definitely not a big issue. And other than that, and other than what I mentioned about kind of wishing the ending had gone differently this time, I really like this movie. So for someone who loves Satan... (laughs) I love horror movies about Satan. You actually would have preferred how they not put Satan into it? You know, most of the time I would prefer that they go straight to Satan and it was like a cult the whole time. But I think with this particular movie, just with the way that it started and how genuine Cotton was and his mission and just, I feel like I'm a little emotionally biased right now too because of all the shit you told me before we went into this movie and that kind of reinforced what I was already feeling. Yeah, I do kind of wish that they had gone the abuse route and I feel like that would have been more impactful. But like I said, I'm not going to fault the movie for that because I think their intention was to make a movie that was fun and they certainly pulled that off. It was a lot of fun. I guess I wish it was less fun. I don't know. <laughs> but there, there are plenty of other horror movies that are not fun, so I'm really not going to fault it for that. I really like it. I, I feel like, like it, it ended the way it started. It was fun. I guess so, yeah. I, I feel yeah. like they started out fun, they took you on a ride, and I said, hey, we got you. Yeah, they got us all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I do really like it, and it, it is a fun ending, and I, I really love the imagery of cotton running into the fire with those crucifix that was super cool that's something you don't get a lot with found footage movies is fantastic special effects Mm -hmm. or cool imagery it's hard to do that so that was a like a little treat they did do a very decent job of getting well-placed shots and good cinematography for and they got away with it by making an actual documentary crew right i love it when people do that it's kind of like when with uh, 1408, where you get away with the narrator narrating so passionately. Yeah, because he's, he's a, writer. a writer. Yeah, so You it know, makes or sense. whatever it may be. So yeah. I, I thought it was a very clever way to implement good cinematography in a movie. That's a good point. A, a found footage movie by yeah. viewing it through the lens of professional documentary crews. That's a good point, yeah. And then with uh, Ashley Bell, who plays Nell, 
you know, there's that part where she's in the barn and she's bending over backwards and contorting her body and bending her fingers back. We were saying, like, that's definitely not CGI. And they must have found an actor who is extremely flexible. And I actually looked up, uh, Ashley Bell has this condition that's fairly common, actually, but it basically she's able to contort, yeah, contort her body that way. Like she's, her joints are loose or something. I don't know what the condition is, but she was able to do that naturally without any kind of CGI enhancement, which it is was pretty cool. Very compelling. Yeah. Very compelling. <laughs> very fascinating. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. as far as it seemed it real. It looked real, yeah. Yeah, so the effects were good. I also loved the moment where they they go into her bedroom, and that's when she gets out of the chains and she's really freaking out, and they don't see her anywhere, and then she's just like on top of her dresser, just crouching up there. Yeah. So I really liked it. I think it was a good pick, and uh, I'm having a really hard time with the rating for this one because I really like this movie. There were just a couple things, like I mentioned, the soundtrack and... I feel like just this time around is the first time I kind of found myself wishing that it had gone a different direction. But as a whole, I really enjoyed it. And we rate on a scale of 0 to 12 beers. So for The Last Exorcism, I've been really torn between like a 9 and a 9.5. I'll go 9.5. I'll be generous. All right. 9.5. I'm yeah. right there with you. I'm going with a 9. Okay. And I, I'll be honest, I didn't do a full analysis of why it's a nine that's just a gut nine in you know a vague foggy idea of why it should be there so that's my pick i okay you know i there's things like you said there's the aspect of and retrospect when you're watching it and having the soundtrack that is it's a little jarring jars you out pulls you out of it and at the same time i understand that they kind of had to decide like do we keep the facade up that it's a documentary crew and that there's hope for our cast or do we leave it silent and have it almost obvious that this was their death so i probably would have made the same choice but at the same time it is a double-edged sword yeah and then other than that i was very i mean it's just everything was great actors were great dialogue was convincing the storyline was very convincing i liked the message behind it both from kind of a critique on exorcist movies as well as it being just an overall critique or at least just a an analytical view of exorcisms and reality so i appreciated all that but at the end of the day it was an exorcist story and it was a found footage so right i think nine nine you know what i'm gonna nine i'm gonna redact it i'm gonna do a nine i'm gonna do that that was my first instinct i was trying to be generous but I think nine is a perfectly fair score. I really like this movie. I would, I'll absolutely watch it again. I know I'll watch it again. I would recommend it any day of the week. Yeah, I'll, I would recommend except it to horror Tuesday. fans, <laughs> except for Tuesday because that's when we record. All right, so nine. I think a solid nine is fair. Well, that being said, what kind of beer does this pair with? So I feel like this movie would pair really nicely with like a strong ale of some sort. And there's that brewery that I think I've had maybe one beer from them. And I every time I pass them at Total Wine, I'm really tempted to buy it because it looks so fancy and so cool. And the artwork is like super dark. And it's, a, it's the Lost Abbey Brewery. They have a bunch of different beers. They have their regulars that come out year round and they have their seasonals. And there's this one in particular called the Ex Cathedra. And it is a barrel-aged strong ale. I think this movie would pair perfectly with that beer. 
not only because of the the theme of this movie, like the religious themes and undertones, but I looked up what ex cathedra means, and it basically translates to from the chair, and it refers to anything said with the full authority of office, and this particularly refers to the Pope. So I think that would be a nice pairing for this movie specifically. Nice, good pick. Nice and dark, a little cheeky. Yeah, cheeky. <laughs> and it's just a, it seems like a good, indulgent, treat-yourself beer. It definitely is. Those are yeah. baller beers. Yeah, that's why I don't buy them. They're expensive. But they're good. <laughs> yeah. From what I've had. I've, I think I've only had one or two in my life. But... Yeah, same. So treat yourself to a Lost Abbey ex Cathedra. Do it. Watch the movie. Hopefully you've already watched it because we just spoiled the whole thing. But if not, you should still watch it. It's still worth watching. It's very good. Sure. All right. Well, that was my pick. What are we watching this week? Hopefully you won't get upset with me for stealing your thunder because I know you've been talking about picking this movie for a while and I've been patiently waiting for you to pick it and you haven't and I've been wanting to watch it. So I decided to pick it myself. So for our next episode, we will be covering Sinister. Oh, sweet. I have been dying to watch that one. All right. It's great. It's streaming on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. Please don't let us spoil it for you. Don't watch any previews. Don't look at any pictures. Don't even look at the cover. Yeah, just watch it. It's fucking scary. Watch it in the dark. <laughs> yeah, watch it in the dark. Make sure you have a great sound system. It's got, oh, it's got it's a got great soundtrack. It's got a killer soundtrack. Yes. Yeah, the soundtrack is like 80% of the horror, in yeah. my opinion. Check it out. Love it's great. I'm, I'm really excited to watch that one and cover that. We're going to watch it in the dark, right? Oh, hell yeah. All right. Yeah. It's going to be hard to take notes, but I'll take notes the next day. Yeah. I'll remember it. I want to be fully immersed when I, yeah, we watch I this. Too. Yeah. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, I'm excited. So, our Sinister episode will be coming out as scheduled, but we also have a very special bonus episode coming out this Saturday, the 22nd. So, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be this Saturday. We had the amazing opportunity to interview a new horror director. His name is Ryan Kruger, and we were able to talk with him about his first feature-length film called Fried Berry. So... This guy is super awesome. He reached out to us. We were able to get in touch with him and talk with him about his background, why he decided to turn his short film Friedberry into a feature-length movie, and I had a fantastic time talking with him. I'm really excited for this interview to come out, and I'm super excited for this movie to come out. It looks like something that is right up my alley. It totally does. He was a real cool cat, and we had a great time doing it. I hope to do more like that in the future. Definitely. And I recommend that you all listen to that when we are able to publish it in a week from you listening to this, I suppose. Yeah, so this one's actually, it's going to be like a bonus episode. So we'll have our, our Sinister episode coming out on the regular Tuesday. And this episode will be published on Saturday the 22nd. So okay. it's like an extra episode. But... We are very excited. Keep an eye out. If you're following us on Instagram, too, I'll be posting closer to publishing the episode. I'll be posting some trailers so you can see what Fried Berry is. And then if you have time, go and check out some of his music videos and short films because he has a very wide range of work. He's been in the industry for over 20 years and he's incredibly talented. Yeah, you'll get a hear from him and his background and you can look into all the stuff he's been doing so far and his new adventure doing a feature-length horror movie. Yeah, so I'm really excited for that to come out. I'm glad that we got to do that. So as always, you can follow us on Instagram at Blood, Fear, and Beer Podcast. And if you have questions for us or movie or beer suggestions, feel free to email us at bloodfearandbeer at gmail.com. 
And if you can rate and review us, greatly appreciated. We get more people that are interested that way, and hopefully we get to interview more cool directors and stuff. I really hope so. That was awesome. And please do remember, if you decide to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, just make sure it's G-rated, because even the hint of a swear, they will pull that review so fast. They don't mess around with that. So keep it G-rated. And thank you guys so much. This has been super fun. I'm really excited to watch Sinister and not sleep that night. So until next time, keep it spooky. Keep her spooky. Oh, the me? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what you're waiting for. I'm just like... Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Greg. My name's Alicia. We got two here. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Greg. My name's Alicia. We got two beers in front of us. We watched a horror movie. We're ready to talk about it. That must mean it's another episode of Blood, Fear, and Fear. Damn it. Blood, Fear, and Fear. God. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Greg. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? Sorry. It's like an outtake reel. Like once you start laughing, you can't stop. Ready? Maybe not right. <laughs> <laughs>